Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks for coming out. Um, I'm especially happy to be here. Um, during uh, season one of The Leftovers, I was living in uh, the Oakwood in Burbank, which was like a nightmare. Um, and I would come down here every night just to uh, get away from my place in the Oakwood, which I didn't know I had to live. I didn't know I could live elsewhere. Um, so, Mrs. Fletcher is set in 2014 um, when our country had some problems, but uh, also had a president who was uh, intelligent and competent and had a humane and inclusive uh, vision of what America could be uh, and not a uh, hate spewing bigot um, and a neo-Nazi apologist. So what that means is the book has a kind of a air of unexpected nostalgia. Yeah. Uh, I thought I was like right on the, on the minute, you know. But this is a sweet story of what we used to be. Um, so Mrs. Fletcher is a story of um, a 46-year-old mom with uh, uh, one son and in the first chapter he goes off to college and so she goes home to she's divorced and, and lives alone and she uh, comes home and sort of has to face the question of uh, you know how do I, what's the rest of my life going to be um, and one of the things that she does um, is uh, she takes a, a class at the community college uh, and it's a class on gender and society. She, she was hoping to take a class on the English country house from uh, Jane Austen to Downton Abbey, but that was full. So she, so she takes a gender studies class, and, and this is uh, what happens uh, at the end of this gender study class. So if, if you happen to have heard the Fresh Air interview that I did recently, um, you'll know that uh, I wasn't allowed to say the word MILF on, uh, on national public radio. So, this will be my revenge. <clears throat> when class was dismissed, he headed out of the building with Barry, the bearded bar owner, tagging along beside her, totally uninvited. They'd been randomly paired off for an in-class exercise, and had spent the better part of the past hour exchanging gender histories, focusing, per the professor's instructions, on moments of gender-related confusion, doubt, and or shame. That was pretty intense, he said. I have ex-wives who don't know me as well as you do. He didn't say so, but she doubted Barry's ex-wives would have complained about not knowing him well enough. <laughs> he was a what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of guy, a blustery jerk who began his conversation by insisting that he'd never in his life experienced a single moment of confusion, doubt, or shame in relation to his gender identity. The story of Barry's life, as narrated by Barry, was simple. At first he was a boy, then he was a man. 
the path from point A to point B had been straight, self-explanatory, and fun to travel. And get the point of all this navel-gazing, he told her during the exercise. I was born with a penis. End of story. Eva tried to draw him out, asking if he'd ever wished he could get pregnant or breastfeed a child. Her ex-husband Ted had once called the ability to bear children a female superpower. He was trying to cheer her up at a particularly bloated and trying moment in her third trimester. And the description had stuck with her through the years. It's kind of a miracle, she said, feeling that little person growing inside you and then feeding it with your body when it comes out. I imagine most men would be at least a little jealous. Barry chuckled appreciatively, as if congratulating Eve on a good try. <laughs> God bless the ladies, he said, and thank you for your service. I really don't know how you'd do it. And then he launched into a long and needlessly graphic account of the toll that childbirth had taken on his first wife's body, especially her breasts, which were never the same afterward, he was sorry to say. He'd hoped they would bounce back, so to speak. They were her finest attribute, but no such luck. At least he'd learned his lesson. When his second wife got pregnant, he persuaded her to bottle feed, and it was a smart decision. The baby didn't give a shit, and Mama's hooters, those were his actual words, remained miraculously perky. She did thicken a bit around the waist, but that wasn't what caused the marriage to go south. They had bigger problems, most notably his affair with a 25-year-old waitress who had soon become wife number three. With that one, he laid down the law, no fucking kids, and she was all right with that until she turned 30, at which point she wasn't anymore, and that was that. Jesus, he wondered, how many ex-wives are there? Just the three. I've had a few girlfriends since then, but it's not that easy to convince someone to be wife number four. Believe me, I tried. In the classroom, Eve had listened to Barry's checkered history with scientific detachment. The point was to write a profile of the subject, not to judge him on his shortcomings. Out in the parking lot, though, a sense of retroactive revulsion came over her, exacerbated by the fact that he was crowding her as they walked occasionally bumping shoulders with her in a way that might have seemed friendly or even intriguing if he hadn't just outed himself as a heartless creep. I'm a big girl, she told him. You don't need to walk me to my car. And I'm a gentleman of the old school. Nothing wrong with a little chivalry, right? Women say they don't like it, but in my experience, they're pretty grateful if you hold the door or pick up the check or bring them flowers. He didn't want to admit it, but she knew he had a point. Things had changed so much over the course of her lifetime that women her age had all these different models of behavior jammed into their heads. You could be a 50s housewife and a liberated professional woman, a committed feminist and a blushing bride, a fierce athlete and a submissive, needy girlfriend. Most of the time you could switch from one role to the other without too much trouble and without even realizing that you might be contradicting yourself. There's some gender confusion right there, she observed. I guess I learned something tonight. Well, if you're going to study this crap, you might as well do it with a shemale, right? Excuse me? You didn't know? Barry seemed pleased by her cluelessness. Our professor used to be a he. Really? Yep. Margot was Mark Fairchild. He was a great college basketball player. He even played pro in Europe for a couple seasons. He tugged his beard. Not a bad-looking woman, actually. Eve's surprise was short-lived. The signs were there, 
now that she knew what she was looking for, but she never would have guessed it on her own. Live and learn, she thought. I've never met a transgender person before, she said. At least I don't think so. Not that I'm attracted to her, Barry added, in case she'd misunderstood his earlier comment. I mean, to each his own, right? But that's a bridge too far for me. I wonder if she tells the guys she dates beforehand. How do you know she dates guys? Just the general vibe I'm getting. You think she got the surgery? I'm not really sure how that works. Eve was relieved to arrive at her car. She'd had more than enough of Barry for one night. All right, she clicked her remote key and the van flashed its lights. Guess I'll see you next class. Hey, he said as she reached for the door handle. You wanna get a nightcap? My bar's right down the street. Drinks on me. It's been a long day, she told him. I need to get home. Suit yourself, Barry said with a shrug. I'll take a rain check. It was too bad she didn't like him a little better, because a drink after class would have been nice. At the very least, it would have given her an excuse to stay out for another hour or two, to delay the inevitable moment when she returned home and had to once again confront the enormity of her son's absence, the fact that he'd grown up and left her, and the knowledge that this was good and proper, exactly what nature had intended, and that she had no right to complain. The fact that her life had turned into this, this lifeless hush, this faint but elusive whiff of decay, this absolutely nothing to complain about. She didn't linger downstairs, just poured herself a glass of wine, grabbed her laptop, and headed up to her bedroom. She locked the door behind her. Not a real lock, just a hardware store hook and eye that wouldn't have kept out a determined intruder but might give her a few seconds of advance warning, hopefully enough time to grab her phone and dial 911. She installed it six or seven years ago, after a couple of embarrassing incidents when Brendan had wandered in while she was getting dressed. He insisted that these were honest mistakes, but she wasn't so sure. He was just at that age when boys get curious, and she decided that a little deterrence would go a long way. For the past few years, Ever since she'd opened her account, Facebook had been an integral part of Eve's bedtime ritual. She found it soothing to scroll through her newsfeed one last time before turning in, paying a visit to her various friends and acquaintances, reminding herself that she wasn't really alone. They were always right there where she'd left them, the usual suspects posting about the usual stuff, recipes, pithy sayings, scanned photos from the good old days the inevitable pets, the banal declarations, witty memes, deep thoughts, political rants, viral videos. A group from her hometown had a new thread rhapsodizing about the freezy cone ice cream stand on Franklin Street, gone for at least two decades, that included 87 comments, most of which expressed sentiments like yum and best ice cream ever and vanilla with rainbow sprinkles. She forced herself to read every last one of them. It should have been enough to put anyone to sleep. But he was still wide awake when she finished, still as restless and aroused as she'd been when she started. So there was nothing to do but the thing she promised herself she wouldn't do, though it was, admittedly, a promise she'd made with her fingers crossed, knowing it would probably have to be broken. 
For a sexually liberated person in her mid-40s, Ebit had, until a few days ago, a fairly limited acquaintance with pornography. She remembered thumbing through a friend's brother's stash of magazines as a teenager, being intimidated by the airbrushed beauty of the centerfold models in Playboy, and genuinely shocked by the beaver shots in Hustler. Her visceral distaste turned ideological in college, where it was a feminist article of faith that porn degraded and objectified women while exploiting them for financial gain. Why would you want to have anything to do with a dirty business like that? After she graduated, she began to notice that this opinion wasn't universally shared. Lots of supposedly enlightened men she knew seemed to like porn, or at least they liked joking about liking porn. But she was surprised to learn that a number of her women friends were fans too. Her grad school colleague Allison reported that she and her fiance had a standing Friday night porn day that they both looked forward to all week. Succumbing to peer pressure early in their marriage, even Ted had rented a movie called Fuck My Secretary. This was back when every video rental store had a triple X section, usually hidden in the basement or tucked away in a separate room. But they only made it through a couple of minutes before throwing in the towel. The actors, it seemed like freaks. The secretary endowed with gravity-defying breasts, while the boss sported an erection the size of a prize zucchini. It did absolutely nothing for Eve or Ted, so they turned off the VCR and made love cheerfully enough with their own human-sized equipment. Her triple X history had pretty much stopped there. She'd never surfed for porn on the internet and hardly ever thought about it, except in an anxious parental capacity. Which was why it was so disorienting to find herself returning for the sixth day in a row to milfateria.com, <laughs> world's biggest buffet of all-you-can-eat amateur milf porn, scrolling through the thumbnails of recently uploaded clips. Lovely wife BJ, anal milf with cream pie, Abby loves BBC, sexy Samantha first time on camera, saucy soccer mom takes it like a champ, saucy soccer mom. Eve smiled at the description and clicked on the link. That seemed worth a look. <laughs> it was the anonymous text that had led her here, the one that arrived last Friday night. She'd forgotten all about it until Saturday morning, when she turned on her phone and saw that idiotic message staring back at her. You are my MILF. She wasn't sure why it had bothered her so much. It was probably just a harmless prank, the handiwork of a drunk teenager getting his late night kicks. Texts like these were the digital equivalent of obscene phone calls. Send me a naked pic. All she had to do was delete it and get on with her day. But she kept squinting at those words, floating so innocently in their cartoon bubble, as if they had every right to inhabit her phone. Before she realized what she was doing, she'd typed a reply of her own. I'm not a MILF, you little shit. Luckily, her good sense kicked in before she pressed send. There was no point in engaging with an anonymous pervert, giving him the satisfaction of a response, a reward for his harassment. MILF. She knew what the acronym stood for, of course. She hadn't been living under a rock. At least she thought she did. In her mind, it was just an updated name for the old Mrs. Robinson stereotype the predatory middle-aged woman with a taste for younger men, maybe even boys who were Brendan's age. 
That was the main thing that creeped her out. The possibility that the text had come from one of her son's friends, or maybe even his new roommate. I want to come on those big floppy tits. What kind of person would say something like that to a friend's mother? And what if it was Wade or Tyler or Max? Boys she'd known since they were in preschool, whom she'd taken to the beach, who'd slept over at her house. It made her queasy to imagine one of them thinking about her body in such parade detail. And they're not that floppy, she thought indignantly. It actually held up pretty well. One thing she'd learned from her web search that morning was that she'd been conflating the terms cougar and milf, which turned out not to be synonymous at all. Milf was a broader, more passive category, basically just any mother that is sexually desirable. What that meant, Eve realized, was that you couldn't really say, I'm not a MILF, because MILF was in the eye of the beholder. The other thing she'd learned was that you shouldn't Google the term if you didn't <laughs> want to find yourself swimming in an ocean of porn. There was no doubt about it. Milfateria.com was part of that unregulated cesspool the assistant DA had warned about so many years ago at the PTA meeting. Eve was regularly shocked and frequently disgusted by what she found there. She disapproved of the site. She would have been horrified if she'd ever found anything like it on her son's computer. And she sincerely wished it didn't exist. But she couldn't stop looking at it. A few of the allegedly amateur MILFs were clearly porn stars, but the vast majority looked like ordinary people. They had stretch marks, C-section scars, pimples on their faces and butts, bruises and rashes, cellulite, underarm and pubic stubble. Some of them wore glasses while they had sex, and more than you might have expected kept their socks on. A lot of them seemed to live in drab houses or cramped apartments. While a few of the women seemed embarrassed by what they were doing, others looked straight into the camera, as if they were a lot more interested in whoever might be watching them than they were in their partners. And the, <laughs> maybe I'll stop that. No. <laughs> and the men, they were, most of them anyway, a parade of horrors, hairy and pot-bellied, wheezy and much too talkative for Eve's taste. They loved to narrate their orgasms in real time. Here it comes, baby, as if the whole world was waiting for an update. In the past week, Eve had spent more time watching Milfateria videos than she would have liked to admit, and she barely scratched the surface. The site was organized by category, oral MILF, anal MILF, threesome MILF, lesbo MILF, ebony MILF, solo MILF, etc. Body type, busty MILF, shaved MILF, big booty MILF, redhead MILF, but also by nationality, Turkish MILF, German MILF, Canadian MILF, Japanese MILF, Israeli MILF, Iranian MILF, and on and on. A global community of women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and even older, Granny Milf, united by their willingness to have sex in front of the camera and share the experience with the rest of the world, unless a man was sharing it without their permission, which probably happened a lot. The sheer number of videos was overwhelming. You could never watch them all, not that you'd want to. There were so many that it seemed like only a matter of time before Eve would find herself looking at someone she knew a high school classmate, a, a neighbor, maybe her old friend Allison. Her reaction was the same every time she started a session. Ugh, 
How could they do it? How could people expose themselves like this? Just the sight of all that naked flesh was overwhelming and off-putting. She cringed at the unimaginative dirty talk and the predictability of the action. She hated the clips that focused solely on the, uh, on the genitalia. She needed to see faces, to get a sense of the person she was watching. It was the only thing that mattered. It was like a blind date or a party. Some people you liked right away, some you didn't. Some you weren't sure about. The saucy soccer mom was horrible. A giggly woman performing a clumsy striptease with the TV blaring in the background. You clicked out of that, tried Swedish milk pink dildo, then Italian wife deep throat, and sexy Abigail morning fuck. None of them did anything for her. But there was always another one. And eventually, tonight it was classy lady loves that cock. Something would click. The couple on screen would seem inspired or even blessed. You could see how alive and happy and unselfconscious they were. And maybe you envied them a little, but you also wanted to thank them for sharing this moment with you. And then that last barrier would crumble. And maybe for a minute or two, you'd feel that you were right there with them. Like when you heard a good song on the radio and the next thing you knew, you were singing along. I will stop there. Terry Gross. <laughs> uh, so I'd be happy to um, answer some questions. Hello. Hi. Um, does the son Brendan? Um, I found so um, terrifying, and and I'm just I he was so awful, and and uh, uh, and, and I'm just wondering how you wrote a character like that. Um, well, so, so Brendan is like a, a frat boy, bro, lacrosse player. Um, he's the kind of guy, like when people talk about the sexual assault crisis on campus, in a way, he's the villain kind of summoned, you know, um, if we had like an aggregate of like who that, you know, the composite of who the suspect would be, um, it would be, it would be Brendan. And, and I sort of felt like, um, He's also the kind of person that we don't um, take seriously in, uh, in, in certainly in fiction, I think. Um, he appears in movies as kind of a, a jerk, usually, or maybe a guy having a good time. And it was the sympathetic portrait I found so interesting. It, well, the sympathy emerges very slowly, <laughs> I think. Um, I, you know, this is something that I, I would connect even to little children where, you know, Ron is just a horrible, horrible human being, you know, and he's an outcast for good reason, but you see him through the eyes of his mother, and, you know, then you can't help but see him, you know, it's like a cliche, that's somebody's son, but, it, you know, the cliche is sort of made literal in in these stories, and um, I think, you know, Brandon is like a, a social problem, um, and it's a problem for Eve, because she raised him, and she wants him to be a good person, and she kind of is beginning to suspect that he's not. Um, and I think this, you know, the, the book wants to ask, like, maybe not can he be good, but can he be better? Can he learn something? And you know, I think the real question for the reader is, um, is there something wrong with him? Is he just 
immature? Is he just steeped in a culture of privilege that he doesn't um, need to question? I mean, the, the book makes him question it a little bit. So, uh, but it felt to me like um, you couldn't really have a discussion of the problem without taking him seriously. Um, I read your article about your distaste for the Marcus Club and how it ties up so nicely. Um, I've noticed with your literature, it doesn't tie up nicely. Can you speak a little bit about why that is? Or yeah, well, that's that's really. I, I feel so bad about my Breakfast Club thing. Um, you know, I think when I was younger, I just had the, the people who were in the Leftovers writer room. Well, now I'm a, just a really sometimes very cranky and have uh, like. I just define myself by what I don't like, which I think that we all have to do on some some level. Um, everybody loved that movie, and it just it just irritated the hell out of me, particularly the Ali Sheedy subplot, because you know, in the end, they just took it all back, right? They just said, "Oh, if you just give her a little makeover, she actually is a hot girl." So all that angst was for nothing, because she can she can be happy because she's hot, um, and I just I just thought. What what a it felt like you know having your cake and, and eating it too in in, in that way. Um, it's a in the end it's kind of a minor <laughs> forgivable flaw, but it really bothered me for many years. Uh, so let me just put an asterisk in my, uh, on that that article. But but it does it does go to the question of you know what a comic novel or film is right because in the in, in the Shakespearean sense, the comic ending is, you know, the order is, uh, you know, messed with, and there's temporary chaos, but then order is restored, and it's often restored with, you know, a marriage or some sense that the social order is uh, back on track. And, you know, and I do write in, for the most part, in a, in a comic vein, and you know, this, uh, I don't want to spoil this, but this book has what is arguably a classic comic ending. But I always have to ask myself, like, how far can I go before, like, The Breakfast Club felt like, like, what, what, you know, what was wrong with Hollywood for a couple decades there, where, it, you know, the ending would be the lover's kiss, the ending would be the factory workers cheer for the boss, you know, um, that would just be that sort of um, forced, uh, jubilation that, that um, it, it always just felt like it had to be that and so there was never any real suspense, it was like you knowing that the superhero is going to save the world it just, it wasn't satisfying because it felt like um, it, it was inevitable um, so I guess I've been trying to figure out like what, what does an honest happy ending look like and that, you know, and for me what it turns out is that a lot of people feel like I've been very, you know, withholding. Like, I was not, I used to have a, my email on my website, and it wouldn't be uncommon for me to get an email that just said, yeah, I read your book, the last 30 pages were missing. <laughs> and then I went to the store and got another copy, and the same last 30 pages were missing. <laughs> so, um, that was where the happy ending was supposed to be. As you know. <laughs> Um, is, is that, is that um, 
Does that answer the question? I'm satisfied. Okay. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, yeah. I'm curious, given, given what you're talking about, the last 30 pages missing, uh, what does an editor do uh, with your work? Uh, what, what kind of relationship do you have doing that kind of stuff? You know, in, in this, the case of this book, that was exactly... Um, I turned in a, a, a version that was basically a hundred pages short. It was a really compressed book with a much more, um, there's a sort of, at a certain point there's a jump forward and it, uh, and my editor really felt like that was too violent a leap and I had to fill in. Um, so, so it really was, um, you know, I think some writers, you know, the famous things like Tom Wolfe just would dump, uh, Thomas Wolfe, not Tom Wolfe, Thomas Wolfe would dump, you know, thousands of pages on his editor, and the editor would turn it into a, a, a novel. But I, uh, for me, it's like, uh, I maybe tend to be a little skeletal, and, and so revising and editing process is sort of adding more and, and fleshing it out, because my instincts are kind of minimalist, I think. Yes? Hi. Hi. Um, really funny book. Um, congrats. Your, char your characters are so great. Um, I was just curious how, like, the things, like, even that, I think it was Amanda, or the, the co-worker, like, things that she does that you write in there, like, Things that only like women know, yes. like adjusting her bra or, you know, or things that the characters do in private are very, they, yeah, they're very personal to me. I'm like, what's the first time I've ever been like, how does he know that we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. Like, I know a novel takes a lot of time to write. Um, but, I'm here, but, um, you know, why, like, how do you find the time to find these little details, or, like, I don't know, is it, like, a waitress, or something? A yoga instructor. Yeah, like, the little things. Well, that's you're, the... You're really good at them. Oh, thanks. Like, <laughs> how do you find the time to think, to know what, especially women do in crisis? Yeah, it, 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 it's really the time, I think. Um, but it is, it is the job, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, the, the book really is about this exactly, you know, like, for a lot of time you're in Eve's head and her world feels one way, and then when you're in Brendan's head, his world feels this other way, and there's the sense that these two worlds don't overlap at all. Um, but, you know, just for instance, when I was a kid, there were a lot of women's magazines in our house, and I would always read them, you know? And it's like, you know, women are always, like, talking very loudly about their lives, <laughs> with the assumption that, that, men, that they're on some frequency that like men just are ignoring, right. I think. Yeah. So, so if, if you decide to like tune into that radio station, <laughs> it's like 24-hour programming. <laughs> Yeah. And I found myself like mailing my mom, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not 
No, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I listened to your interview with, uh, with with Terry Gross, which I found fascinating when you were discussing uh, the MILF acronym, because for, for a time you she was asking you about going to college and, uh, and the culture on campuses now in terms of how the rules are changing without realizing that she had asked you not to use that word. Um, and I was just curious without betraying the confidence of Terry Gross, um, but also uh, knowing that maybe you had considered at a certain point a different title for this book. You know, what is it, it, it are we not allowed to say it anymore? Um, uh, or ha has- I just said it like speak? 40 times. <laughs> Is it incendiary? Is it radioactive? Is it well, yeah, that's, it's actually been a really instructive thing. So I, I, I wanted to call the book The MILF, and because I think that the basic idea of it is Eve is a woman who is sort of temporarily without a sexual identity, and this word gets applied to her. She's sort of offended by it, but then she realizes, well, maybe there's a compliment in it, but she ends up through this point kind of trying it on. And once she tries it on, the world looks a different way, and I, I just do feel like you know we're very interested in sex and identity now, and the number of sexual identities that are available to people is multiplying, and that's all great. And and once you can find an identity that works for you, then the world makes a kind of sense that it didn't make before you had an identity. Um, this is a, a murky identity. It's sort of a it's a joke identity. It's a porn identity, um, but it is also an identity for women of an age where sometimes they feel like they've lost that uh, identity and so uh, I, I thought it sounded like a like a trashy title but but you know I thought oh but it's sly because it's got um, there's a, or something substantial about what the way the book uses it but my publisher is like no <laughs> and and I, you know, I really tried to like uh, be adamant. I just said, I have a title that I like, you know, and if you have a title that's better, you know, tell me, but I'm sticking with mine. And we really got right to the wire, like the catalog was going out, um, and we needed a title, and they just said, We're, it's not going to be the MILF. Um, <laughs> because the idea was that there were certain people who just wouldn't buy it. Um, but I didn't know that, you know, National Public Radio wouldn't allow you to say it. Um, and it's been like a, a case by case thing where people are just like, I don't know if I, uh, I know that I talked to the critic for Newsday and she said she wasn't allowed to use it. Um, I mean, it's just one of those surprises. I mean, now, of course, again, we're in the Trump era, so, you know, if Steve Bannon is sucking his own cock. Um, so, I, but in the meantime, I can't say no on pressure. But, I actually, in the end, I, it's, I, Mrs. I argued against Mrs. Fletcher because Eve, that's like her married name and she's stuck with it. And, and this girl, Becca, keeps calling her Mrs. Fletcher and she's like, please don't call me Mrs. Fletcher. But to me, in the end, I thought, no, that works because it's the flip side of the MILF. It's like, she doesn't want to be Mrs. Fletcher, so she, she tries being the MILF, you know? So it's, it was almost like the same title and, and it's less. Um, and, but then I was also getting, some people are going, I don't know what that means. Uh, people, you know, my age or older, 
certain like smart ass people in their 30s going like, oh, that's so dated. Um, and other people going like, that is um, offensive. So, uh, and, and again, that actually, that excited me. I thought to have a, a word like this that evokes a strong reaction, um, I thought that was good, but other people thought that was bad. <laughs> Uh, sorry if this was discussed on Terry Gross or another forum, but uh, <laughs> I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about um, what the process was like writing this novel at the same time as working on the HBO show The Leftovers, and if there was any sort of exchange between working on both in terms of ideas or At first, I think that it was, um, you know. I was working on the show, and I was—we'd have a hiatus, and I would try and—I was trying to like preserve my identity as as a fiction writer. But I was also kind of telling myself, I'm going to write a comic novel because the show seems so so heavy. But then, as you might know, if you watch the show all the way through, the show got funnier and funnier as it went on. And so, sort of by the end, like the leftovers was much funnier than my book. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I, you know, I actually didn't feel like a a strong overlap. I mean, this this book felt to me like a kind of return to you know, the leftovers is, is a little bit of an aberration in my um, writing career, uh, but it also now is the thing that maybe a lot of people know know best. And so, so I felt like I was just sort of going back to like the classic mode of. Um, but for some people, it will, the, the two together will seem maybe a little bit incongruous, but maybe other people can find some uh, um, overlap. But, but I was sort of thinking of them really in a kind of just two separate parts of my, my writing life. And you know, Leftovers was so collaborative and, and intense, and it was really one of the great creative experiences in my life. Um, and this was sort of me alone again, you know, so I, I just really felt them as very different um, uh, writing experiences and, and, you know, and, and kind of try to appreciate uh, that though there were times when I wish that I'd had seven really smart people to <laughs> come up with some better lines. <laughs> yeah. Leftovers might be an aberration. Um, I don't want to ask you where you get your ideas, but how do you know which ideas you really want to pursue and, and follow out of all of those ideas? Yeah, that, that's, that's actually a, a great question. And it, I've, the first thing to say is that I don't have a ton of ideas. <laughs> so I, I can be pretty. Um, pretty monogamous with them for, for a long time. So I'm never, like right now, I'm not sitting here going like, I have six great ideas, and um, I'm going to have to pick one. I basically have like one idea that's been in my head for some time, and that's really the, the way that I pick them, is that you know ideas will enter my head, and then they'll just leave, because they, just, they don't have that staying power. But every now and then, an idea will come, and it, uh, you know, I, I will recognize it and 
um, but I'm usually working on something else, and so it just gets to sit there for a while. And if, if it really does stick around for, like, it's never like on Tuesday I have an idea and Thursday I start a book. It's really like in 2012 I have an idea and maybe next month I'll start start the book. Um, and I think that's that's actually um, that's turned out to be a good a good way to recognize it. Um, so yeah, I mean that that it, it helped. You know, when I was younger, I used to, I, have, I still have it. I have this big envelope full of like scraps of paper. When I was a short story writer and. Basically, I told myself, like, there's stories everywhere. And I would just say, like, you know, um, three-legged dog. You know, and, like, I got all these things in, in, the, in the envelope. And none of them ever became stories, you know, but, but I, I thought they were everywhere. But so now I don't even, like, look for it. I don't look. You know, uh, when I was a freshman in college, we, we took this uh, class on romantic poets. And all these Wordsworth poems are Wordsworth going out looking for a poem, you know, and then he, like, finds it. It's just some tree or some ruin. Um, and I found that that's not the, not the way to do it. But let the ideas come to you. Or if you um, make enough time to read as, as much as you write, or if, if, um, if it's out of balance, and if there are any novels that you've read more than once. So it's out of balance in the sense that when I'm working on a novel, I end up not being able to read a lot of fiction. Uh, but, but now, for instance, I'm not working on a novel and I'm just like playing catch up. So I think over time it sort of balances out. Like I have periods of um, in, intense, uh, intense reading. Like I just feel like I'm fueling up right now because when I'm writing, um, it's like if I read somebody who's a really great stylist. Um, sometimes that can be inspiring, and other times that can be incredibly depressing. Uh, or, or just more like, I should write like that, like they get in my head, and then um, it, it's not a good idea to, to do that, I think. It, so it's really just a visceral thing. It's not that I don't want to read it or think that it, I'm going to poison myself. It's just uh, I'll get through a paragraph, and I'll just be full of like weird uh, you know, reactions to it. I just, there's no way I'm going to finish the books. I, I try to do nonfiction, or I, I read a lot of um, crime novels, which don't often affect me in quite the, the same way. Uh, but, you know, I'm just starting to reread books. I used to not, I used to have that feeling of, well, there's so much I haven't read, why should I reread something? But I've lived so long now that um, <laughs> it's like I never read, I just, like, I, you know, if I read, uh, Kafka now, it's like, wow, this is great. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, it happened with uh, The Scarlet Letter, you know, I read it in high school and thought I hated it, and then I read it a few years ago, and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, so I almost feel like now everything's fair game, and it will all be for the first time. Yes? Hey, I'm jumping off of that. I've reread several of your books. <laughs> um, a little earlier tonight, I was surprised to hear you say you thought of yourself as a minimalist. Because having read your books, you create these characters that are so, so full. Feel like we, I know them as people better than like my neighbors who I see every day because I have dogs or my coworkers that I spend 40 plus hours a week with. 
Um, how long do they live in your head before you feel like they're ready to come out onto the paper? And then, or whatever method you use. And then when you're done, how do you walk away from them? How do you let them go? Um, so there's a question, I don't know, is there, are people hearing, that it was just, you know, how long do these characters uh, live in my head? So, uh, you know, the ideas live in my head and the ideas are usually just very situational. Like, okay, there's a woman and her son goes off to school and somehow she uh, gets obsessed with porn and it, it transforms her erotic self. You know, that was sort of the idea, but I didn't know the woman at all. So she only emerges in the writing. Like I have no, um, I have a sense of her, you know, maybe, oh, she's, she's lonely or, uh, but, but the, the, the characters emerge in the, in the writing. They don't exist before it. Um, <clears throat> what I meant, I guess, when I said I'm a minimalist, um, uh, I, when I was in grad school, a lot of writers my age were, there, there seemed to be like two roads, you know, and it was this sort of maximalist, you know, pension road um, that, you know, David Foster Wallace and um, a lot of, you know, the, the really well-known writers of my generation went down that road. The other road was the Carver Road, and that was the one that, that I went down. And if you read my first book, Bad Haircut, I think you'll feel like, oh, this guy was reading a lot of... Carver at, at that time. I think it's loosened up since, but I, I, I think maybe that's when I said said that. Um, that's what I was um, referring to, but also because um, I was a story writer, um, I, I really do like my novels to end like story. Like I want them to be alive right up to the point where they stop. Because I think a lot of novelists, there's a lot of epilogue in in novels. Like you feel like the book ended, and then, but now there's maybe 40 pages of additional material uh, and I, I really I, you know, I don't like I don't like novels that end like that I really feel like I want it to be churning till the till the last line yeah. uh, another question about your head I was wondering how you think of things I guess when you write do you feel like you're recording films or creating films at all I mean are you picturing and recording or yeah, no, it, it actually comes up a lot, I think, because my work has been adapted and people will say, like, oh, it, it, it may feel um, some, somewhat cinematic. Um, and I, and I, I do want it to be visual, like, like uh, you know, like one of the things, and this goes to the minimal, too, it's like, I feel like if I only use a few details, then you can visualize them clearly. Um, it's much easier to describe a refrigerator that has like a, a jar of pickles in it than a refrigerator with you know a week's worth of groceries. Um, so maybe some of that um, does that. But I also just I write in scenes for for the most part. Um, it's not uh, voice driven in the way that some writers are voice driven. So yeah, I do think um, there is. That, that experience is a kind of a whatever that is that it happens in your mind when you read. I, I do think this is a a visual one where some people it just it's kind of oral. It's it's a, the sound of the, of the language in your head and, and um, you know di different things happen. So yeah, I, I would I would um, accept that. Okay, are we at the are we at the end?
Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.